0: Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
1: Even though I don't mind and still am in places where I'm on the stage, quote unquote, I don't mind leading worship. I don't mind preaching. I don't mind, you know, speaking at conferences. I enjoy that. But I am even more motivated when I meet someone who's 18, I walk with them through their four years of college. I am a part of their process of coming into ministry, and now they are being asked to do the very thing I did 10 years ago, and I got to be a part of that.
2: What have you done
3: today? I've looked through some uh, upcoming book catalogs to get a sense of uh what is coming down the pike in terms of uh new releases yeah we had lunch with a publicist who pitches us uh, new book ideas uh, time and again yeah and that's uh, pretty much the long and short of it i've also got some editing to do for the upcoming print issue
2: i'm talking with matt reynolds you are an associate editor is that correct title Associate editor books. Associate my, editor of books. Yeah, or at at four Christianity books Today, or comma books. I really should know people's in that, titles. Something in that vein. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. So you're uh, associate editor, comma books, um, at Christianity Today, and uh, you do. You're responsible for a lot of stuff. We do a lot of book coverage here. There are a lot of books in the world. There are
3: far too many books in the world for us to do justice to all the worthwhile books that exist, but we we do our best.
2: Everyone get together and decide, like, you're going to do this type of book and you're Mm going to do this type of book rather than 14 books about the same thing, and that way you don't have to...
3: I just want it to be more manageable so I can can read all the books I want to read without that nagging anxiety that when I get to the end of my life, I'll have read maybe 0.1% of the things out there that I would like to read.
2: One of the things I think you're really good at is getting really interesting people to write about interesting books. And one um, example in which you failed at that is getting me to write about or to mm-hmm. interview Santa, Santa Maria Van Oestel. I'm just kidding. It's still a pretty good batting average overall. Though. Yeah, there was that one mistake. So. <laughs> exactly. So that was the fir- that was like, I think, the second piece I'd ever done for CT, actually. Okay. I was working at LJ, mm-hmm. and um, I got that opportunity yeah. to read a- her book, The Next Worship, Glorifying God in a Diverse World. It's a good book, it's a challenging book, it's Mm -hmm. a challenging book for people who think that their church isn't one of those churches who needs to be Mm -hmm. diverse, because actually there's value in every church, is her argument, That's right. being as diverse Mm -hmm. as possible, particularly in this case in their worship, but obviously it helps Mm -hmm. in every case. So I talked to her on today's podcast, Um, we talked quite a bit about her eventual realization that she is more called to mentor others than be the person in the spotlight, which was interesting. She says a lot of people think of her as a spotlight person because Mm -hmm. she is up front often, but she finds more satisfaction in sort of bringing people along. One, In fact, early in the interview, she talks about the fact that people interpret her as not being interested in evangelism because she's so interested in justice. And of course, she makes the case that those things are actually pretty closely tied together. Right. We
3: Um, don't want to drive a wedge between them.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So uh, yeah, that was uh, Santa Maria van Ostel. That's who you're about to hear this interview with. Matt, thanks for helping me introduce this. Yes, happy to be here. <laughs> and uh, everyone should go check out, I don't know, a book review at CT. Absolutely. The, w- Good the last one that, the last one that I think people need to read is cancer. Where is their thy sting? Yeah, this is uh, the author
3: was, uh, I guess, a fairly well accomplished uh, Stanford brain surgeon who was diagnosed with cancer early on in his life. I think he was in his 30s. And the book is about kind of how he uh, came to terms with this and and also how his faith helped him put a new spin on the experience of uh, living with and eventually uh, dying from cancer. And it's written by a, a reviewer named Todd Billings. He's a theologian, a seminarian, um, a professor. Uh, he's someone who shares that that fate of having been diagnosed with a a terminal cancer, so it's a topic that's obviously very much on his mind these days. Something he's written about in his yeah. own books and articles, and uh, so it was, yeah, it was a wonderful, a wonderful fit. I think of uh, sometimes when you can get a book where the subject matter and the reviewer, there's just kind of a synergy between them that mm-hmm. makes for a wonderful review in most cases. So yeah. certainly here
2: for sure. So check that out um, on the CT website right now. There was one other thing I was going to do, which is just kind of like remind our listeners rating and reviewing this podcast matters so much there are two reasons one is it makes me feel so nice inside i feel really warm so i just got this one review that just says um needed richard clark this is where i brag on myself richard clark does an incredible job at portraying christian mega leaders as tangible common brothers and sisters in the faith humbling compelling and affirming this has been beyond healing and helpful in and, my and life that was and submitted by Richard Clark of <laughs> Wheaton Illinois no it yeah. R- R- Richard Clark's <laughs> mom <laughs> no it's from Aure- Aurelius Fire I appreciate it. The reason I appreciate it even more than the warm feelings in my heart, which I'm trying not to rely on so much these days, that's just a personal growth thing with me, but also I appreciate it because it helps people discover our podcast. Literally every one of these ratings and reviews matters in a very tangible way that you can see like in iTunes charts and stuff, so that when people go, I want a good Christian podcast, and they look and they see a lot of like sermon podcasts. Mm-hmm. We'll be right there in the middle of them, and that's okay. good for everyone. Yeah, except there's for those a lot sermon of podcasts,
3: a lot of options out there. So you need some guidance. Curation. You need some, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's up to you, listeners and viewers and readers, mainly listeners, to provide that guidance. Anyway, so here's the interview with Sandra Maria Van Opstal. So, how did your book launch party go? I was oh, totally gonna
1: oh, go. Oh yeah, I'm really sad you didn't come. It was a blast. We had a fantastic time.
2: My mom was flying out that exact same day, okay. so it just became like this hectic, yeah, choice that I had to make. Yeah,
1: I was. Um, I was. There were two things that went on that. Uh, the Evangelical Covenant Church has a uh, reconciliation journey they do. Yeah, and I used to be a part of the ECC. Uh-huh. And so a lot of my friends were on that journey, yeah. and then Lecrae had a concert at Willow. So right. I was like, ah, I can't even believe Lecrae a thought lot. he was going to have a concert and a book um, release on the same day of mine. So what a jerk! Um, <laughs> so inner varsity, another community I was a part of as a, I was a campus minister with them. They also had an event around that Lecrae concert. Uh-huh. So it's you know, there's never a great day <sighs> for everybody. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but we had a, a great time. The book. Launch was exactly what I hoped it would be. Yeah. It was a, just a great time with friends and family and people I hadn't seen in a long time, people i see all the time. The DJ was spectacular. I mean, the awesome. music was great. Oh, yeah. man, it sounds so.
2: fun. So your name is Sandra Maria Van Ostal, Mm-hmm. And you've written a book that's – is it out?
1: It is out, yeah.
2: I mean, so it'll definitely be out by the time this podcast comes out. Oh, for out. sure. It
1: was released January 1st.
2: Okay, so it's called The Next Worship. Glorifying God in a Diverse World. So that book um, is, I thought, a really good book. I've interviewed you about that book for uh, CT. And I just wanted to talk to you in general about your personal calling, how the local church relates to that calling, and just uh, stuff about that. So we always start with one particular question, which is, how would you personally describe your calling?
1: Yeah, and I, I write this and I say this a lot, but I think, Mm -hmm. um, it, it tried, it tries to sum up what I'm, I feel personally called to mobilizing Christians. Okay. For reconciliation and justice and creating spaces where people from different places, different voices can come. Yeah. And learn from one another. Yeah. So I think the call is to, create a space where people, where Christians from different places and backgrounds and ethnicities and denominations can come together and learn from each other for the sake of witness mm-hmm. and for the sake of um, advancing the mission of the gospel. Yeah. So it, it does have a purpose. It's not just kind of gathering together, but gathering to learn so that we can grow together.
2: Right. And what was the moment in which that sort of coalesced in your mind? When did you become convinced that that was your calling?
1: When I went into ministry at first, I a camp I was a campus minister with InterVarsity and I had such a deep passion for evangelism, mm-hmm. just like sharing the gospel with people, proclaiming who Jesus is and um what he's done. And I remember being at on campus at Northwestern and just where I was first at and I would walk around the campus and I would think I want for every single person who steps foot on this campus, whether yeah. they're students or professors or folks that work at the university to hear about Jesus and to experience Jesus in some way. And I used sure. to pray that as I w- would walk through the campus. Um and so I've always had a heart for evangelism, but as I continued to do ministry in a diverse setting, diverse re- religious setting because it was a secular school like sure. Northwestern that brought people in from all over the world. Yeah. Diverse um ethnic setting, you mm-hmm. know, everyone's represented at Northwestern. I began to understand why people could not see eye to eye on things, whether it's faith beliefs within the church, other religions um, outside of Christianity, political perspectives, racial perspectives. So I realized that that was in a very deep way connected to the ministry of proclaiming the gospel, that reconciliation was connected to that. And I would say that's when the call began, because people would say, well, you're kind of, you're the reconciliation lady, you know, you care (laughs) about diversity, Uh you're the justice lady, you're doing the urban program. And so I would kind of, I would be invited to speak on justice, I'd be invited to speak, even from my own experiences Mm -hmm. as a a child of of immigrants who is trying to figure out her own ethnic identity in in light of the world that she lives in. Um, Yeah, so I kind of was, In some ways, put in that box, and then I remember one time someone expressed to me that they felt I did not have a passion for evangelism, and Uh I got very upset. You know, (laughs) I got really upset. I said, "I'm doing this because of my passion for evangelism." Right. The number one critique of young people, and this this was way you know 19 late 1990s, but still is today. The number one critique of young people to the church is that they're irrelevant to the to the issues that happen day to day here, and the issues that we see on the news. The issues of injustice that happen in our world, issues mm-hmm. of poverty and oppression, ra- the racial tensions that we experience in our cities and on our campuses, the church has been mute to that in, in a lot of places. And so I, I said, "Well, actually, I'm doing this because of." I believe the church should be speaking to these issues. Yeah. I believe the church should care and be involved in what happens with Syrian refugees and immigrants in our own country. And I, I believe that that the gospel um, speaks to our not only implied unity but that we are supposed to live into that unity as our brothers and sisters are suffering yeah even within our own country across racial lines and so I, I'm doing this because it's about the witness of the church. We're not credible. You right, know? right. Nobody wants to listen to us. These right. students here at Northwestern don't want to listen to what we have to say.
2: Yeah. Because you they don't that believe us or the, trust us. So the church has done a little better at this lately. Do you think that's still the the overall perception is the church is mute on those issues?
1: Um, I think it's changing. But okay. in the time that I was working on campus sure. at first, was, we're talking about 1997. Right, right. You know, Um.
0: Certainly I think, then. I think there yeah. have
1: been movements, you know, major books written, conferences that have developed. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's particularly catching in millennials. I mm-hmm. mean, I think that they're they're the ones that are leading the way on that. So I think we have yeah. some catching up to do in certain regions of the country or certain generations. But, yeah, I think there's been movement. Um, I just... I think there's also been movement in connecting it theologically like what does justice have to do with evangelism? what does reconciliation have to do with the gospel those kinds of questions I think people right. have been trying to sort out so but this was way this was back in the day you know yeah um, so you had to choose one or the other it's as if people had not <laughs> read the Lausanne Covenant from 1974 and did not read that it's about word and, and deeds, right. you know, and it's about both and.
2: Was this like a thing that you came to understand over time? Did you sort of grow up with an understanding of diversity and its importance? Where did you kind of start on this journey, especially as, I guess, as a, as an adolescent sort of discovering who you were and that sort of
0: thing?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, when I was eight years old, I wrote a letter to Mattel, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think my mom probably knew where I was. She thought I was going to be a lawyer or a judge. Yeah. So I was eight years old. I wrote a letter to Mattel and I basically told them that it was not fair um, that I could not find a Barbie that looked like me because all of my Barbies looked like the people in. My neighborhood, right? Well, at the time I was living in the suburbs, but didn't not look like me. Like mm-hmm. they look like my friends, but not like me. And uh, this was like typewriter, carbon copy. Luckily, there were carbon copies that you could stick in. So I have a, I know I have a, a copy of it somewhere. But for me, I think that began kind of my my call to speaking out against things that I didn't see as right. I mean, I definitely don't know I, that I would have attached it to my faith at eight years old, but right. I definitely. Were you a Christian at that time? I was a church goer. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, but I don't think that I had made any kind of commitments by then yeah. that I could be aware of that happened later on in junior high. But I, I would say, I mean, I was a Latino, a, a, a small Latino child who only spoke Spanish living right. up in a primarily growing up in a primarily, White suburbs. so yeah, I knew that there was differences. I knew that there were differences. I was knew this that in Chicago? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I knew that it, those differences mattered. I knew that um, there were people that were acceptable and people that were not acceptable, and because I belonged to a group of people that were seen as suspect, I very quickly learned to assimilate. And uh, you know, it, yeah, it affected me absolutely. I talk about it all the time with my, with the women that I mentor, in my congregation. That I think that's why I became. I think, in some ways, it drove me because because if people were maybe questioning if I belonged, then I had to work really hard to make sure that people knew I belonged
2: right did the church you went to at that time or as as you were a young Christian, was that a mostly white church?
1: um uh, well, at the time we were attending a Catholic parish, so okay. it was mixed actually because okay. a parish you know the the Catholic Church. Which I love. The parish mentality is: you, if you live within that zip code, you go to that church. Right. That's um, nice. So the church, obviously, the the um, services in English were primarily uh, white. The services in Spanish, you know, Latinos, and then they uh, they had other uh, services as well that were yeah. more mixed. I think, um, depending on the age group of the people, you know, they could understand English. They probably would go to the right to the English service. So yeah. And then when I was in junior high, my father, um, he was doing a summer project like painting houses with, with some guys and the those guys happened to be pastors mm-hmm. um of the Southern Baptist denomination. So they made sure that my dad knew um whether he was a Christian or not. So they really <laughs> witnessed to him. And it, and it was a very, very powerful time for my dad. So uh-huh. he basically up, So he uprooted appreciated it. that yeah he appreciated it. Yeah. Good. So he uprooted As a Southern
2: Baptist that yeah, makes me happy. He uprooted
1: he uprooted us from uh from our parish experience to a very very tiny older like 50 and above southern baptist congregation also in our suburb where yeah. we were and yeah that that was a completely different context it was mostly older people it was yeah very different church service very different faith expression so we learned a lot from that but yeah i th- i would say that uh as, as a small child working out my faith trying to figure out what i believed um those two those two experiences had profound not only impacts, but they still serve as a really solid foundation for me for different reasons. Yeah.
2: Sure. What What was the age where you said, this is what I'm going to do? Like, I'm doing ministry.
1: Oh, my gosh, that came much later. Um, I, I profess faith as a, as a junior high kid, because I went to camp. And nobody had ever asked me before mm-hmm. if, if I wanted to follow Jesus. So yeah. they asked me and I said yes. So I started following him. And then, you know, <laughs> high school happens. I was not like I went to youth group and did that thing, but I wasn't really discipled. <laughs> yeah. Um. I didn't really know about lordship. I, you know, none of that. So when I got to college, um, I met intervarsity, and I was like, oh, Christians. Um. <laughs> I'll just be honest. Yeah. I was like not trying to be around Christians, but I knew I needed it. Yeah. So it was kind of like broccoli. You eat it because it's good for you. Sure. Um. Or kale, you put it in a blender and hide it with other <laughs> kale, things. Kale you know, seems like, you like a better it, analogy. You hide it with other things. Yeah. You know? um, but anyway, it was so powerful. Yeah. And I learned so much. And I learned to study scripture. And I was discipled. And I was mentored. So by the time I left college, I thought, well, I really think I'm called to ministry. Mm-hmm. I think that th- I want to like be with young people who are trying to figure themselves out in light of their vocation, away from their parents, away from their home, and, like me in many ways, culturally completely displaced because there were no latinos where i went to school or in the mm. town that i was i mean yeah. that i could find so trying to figure it out and lost you know in that sense and i want to be there for that age group they're going to make all these major decisions and, and i, I want to be around to help them understand what that has to do with jesus um and of course They were like, we don't really know you. You weren't really like in the track for leadership. I wasn't like the best, you know, most committed student who always came to everything. So it was kind of a journey after that. But I (laughs) I would say that, uh, yeah, I mean, my intent when I graduated from college was to move to Nashville, become a recording artist and be famous. Wow. That's what I had studied, music Uh business. But that last semester, I really, through the experience I was having with InterVarsity, um with, I was doing like three investigative Bible discussions. That's what we called them back then. Like basically groups for nonbelievers who were curious about Jesus. Um One was with arts folks in the arts department. One was the football players. The other one, I was leading a small group and all this was new to me. I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I was just seeing so much fruit. And I was, I think I was discovering something about myself, my passion, as well as yeah, as as well as, well as uh, maybe that sometimes God has different things for you that you want for yourself. So, right.
2: So. And you you made that discovery at at what age? 21. Okay. I was 21. That's a pretty good age. Yeah. That's a nice age to yeah. <laughs> figure out what you're going to do. For me, it was like 28 or something. Yeah, Late
1: so, 20s. And at least I had a, a, a general direction. You know, I, I, I didn't know where I would end up, but I had a general direction. And that was yeah. huge. I mean, that was That's a big surprising deal. to me. Yeah. Because I didn't grow up in a ministry home. Yeah and i didn't really grow up in a an extended christian family i wasn't like the prime candidate to end up in ministry you right. know that's what i felt
2: yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so you're a you're a pastor right now right mm-hmm. at grace and peace community in chicago yes now are you the pastor are you a pastor how does that work
1: the lead pastor is John Zayas, okay. and I am the executive pastor. Okay, so, so what does that entail? My primary job is to um, supervise and to develop the pastoral staff. So okay. I have a worship pastor, youth pastor, children's pastor, and small groups coordinator who are under me, and basically I work with them to make sure they're resourced, they have what they need. I'm investing into their development as leaders. Sure. Um, and then I share the preaching load. Okay. So those are my two primary. Um, and because we're an urban inner city church, I'm only f- part time. So I work 20 hours a week yeah. to do the job of an executive pastor. So that's.
2: It seems like a big theme in your life has been mentorship. Yeah. Like, ma- like helping people with de- like life development and figure out what they're about and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, my um, my two primary spiritual gifts are teaching and yeah. leadership. Sure. So. I think that I find myself in those two spaces all the time in, yeah. in different ways but you know every season's a little different but developing leaders is at the core of what I want to do and so with college students when I was working with university for 15 years I developed leaders mm-hmm. like we didn't do the preaching or small group leading or worship leading or you know service planning we coached and resourced and championed students to do that, so that by the time they would get to their churches, they would have the ability as lay leaders to really contribute to the function of the church, sure um and so discovering what people's gifts are, trying to to resource them with the things they need for those gifts to really come come to fruition, yeah. and then also understanding the distinctives of of what different leaders need, um whether it's gender or whether it's ethnic background, mm-hmm. or whether it's cultural things. I mean, there's so much wrapped up in that. So yeah, I I definitely would say leadership development is the way that my leadership gift is expressed. It's expressed in developing other leaders.
2: When were you doing that sort of thing as a, what was the first sort of like formal, I guess, job that you had that was essentially doing
1: that? Um, my first job with university because I was working with college students and developing them outside of ministry or inside of ministry That one works. I mean yeah. so w- I'm I'm
2: uh I'm trying to get a feel for like what that first year was. So how old were you then?
1: 21 21 22 Yeah. So that's Probably pretty 20s. young. Yeah. That's
0: really young.
1: Yeah. So at the same time, though, when I first came on staff with university, I was also working at a consulting firm. Okay. Because, you know, university staff, like other parachurch organizations, have to raise support. So right. your appointment full-time is contingent on your ability to raise that support. Right. So I had another part-time job um, in corporate training with a local um, – well, actually, it's an international company, but you know, mm-hmm. I was in the marketplace basically, and I was focused on corporate training. So yeah. again, I was, and I was training trainers. Right. So I think I was doing the same kind of thing, right. <laughs> yeah. um, but in a corporate environment, and I would say that's the first place that I led leaders and developed leaders was So yeah, there was job.
2: no like uh I'm in this and now it's hitting me in the face like what the realities are. Like it seems like you had a pretty gradual introduction. Like you started to discover you were good at this, you enjoy doing yeah. it, and then you started doing it and it was just like easy.
1: Well, I don't know that it was easy, but it's interesting, right? Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when a lot of us that are in full time ministry, somewhere along our, our training or preparation, we had to take some kind of personal assessment class. Okay. Or you know, where you do your Myers Briggs and you do your spiritual gifts and you may do strengths finder. You know, right. I, well, we did an um a, uh, an assessment in intervarsity when we were kind of being um invited into management, and what the assessment did was it looked tried to look at what what your motive abilities were, like what really motivates you Mm -hmm. and your leadership. And um, what what came out of that assessment process, it was a really long process, like months of writing stories when you were five, between the time you were five and 10, talk about a time that you were really motivated to, you know. But in that process, um, what came out was that I was really motivated to be a key contributor. Okay. So um, it it really surprised a lot of people that knew me because Uh there's another um temperament that's really motivated by being the being kind of at the star performer. Mm-hmm. And because I was a worship leader, I'm a musician, I was an act, you know, I studied acting and I'm I'm preaching. I'm always up front, kind yeah. of like on the stage. Right. They thought, well surely that that's gonna be Sandra's right. motivator because she doesn't mind being in front of, you know, yeah. lots and lots of people. So the shock was that actually I'm most motivated and most inspired when somebody else is doing that. And I get to be behind the scenes thinking to myself, I got to be a part of that. Right. Yeah. Right. I can relate to that. Yeah. So even though I don't mind and still am Mm -hmm. in places where I'm on the stage, quote unquote, you know? Yeah. So I think that really, that process was really what solidified things for me. It was like, yeah, I I don't mind leading worship. I don't mind preaching. Mm -hmm. I don't mind, you know, speaking at conferences. I enjoy that. But I am even more motivated when... I meet someone who's 18. I walk with them through their four years of college. I am a part of their process of coming into ministry. Maybe they attended seminary at the tail end of my seminary experience, and now they are being asked to do the very thing I did 10 years ago, and I got to be a part of that.
2: That's like a feeling that is so satisfying, because it literally feels like you're changing the world, right? Yeah. I mean, Through other
1: people, through other leaders. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's nice.
1: Yeah. So I think um, that is when I can say, you know – My leadership passion and gift is while I don't mind leading, Mm -hmm. I am more motivated by leading through others and watching and resourcing others and their leadership. And then, so that was with students, right? Right. Then it was with worship leaders nationally and internationally. So I've worked with tons of worship teams in international conferences. These are people that are, you know, they're like touring with Hillsong and they're, you know, they're doing things. Mm -hmm. They're not, they're not worship leaders that need beginning training. Yeah. They're worship leaders who are clearly pastoring in the area of worship, who are asking questions about what it means to do it in the context of a diverse group. And now I get to be a part of that journey with them. And now at Grace and Peace, I mean, the the pastors that are on staff with Grace and Peace are some of the most creative and um, brilliant leaders I've ever worked with. And many of them have not had formal training. Hmm. Uh, they just haven't had access to that, to those resources. Yeah. Um. That wasn't the path that God had for them, and for many of us, like Pastor Jay that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. in, on the South Side, we're working with Christian leaders that are fantastically gifted. You know. Yeah. yeah. And they have everything they need right there, and they will probably n- not get to access the kind of formal education that that we did. So my new, um, kind of my new question and new passion has been: What does it look like for me? to resource these incredible pastors in their context yeah. and help them to become the leaders that God crafted them to be in ways that make sense for them in their context. And is that possible? Or um do we have do they have to say read the same books I read and go to the same places I went? Or is it possible hmm. to to develop homegrown leaders? What is it what does indigenous leadership development look like for our urban context? So again, it's the same kind of Right. practice but with a different group of people
2: what's the answer it do they need to go to those places that you went to i don't think so okay
1: because if they did then <laughs> this is my answer is if they did then if or if they're not going to then we'd have to say they're inferior leaders right right, right. um and then we'd have to we'd be making a statement about three-fourths of the world's pastor right <laughs> yeah right yeah so um we want people to get well, let me say it this way each of us has to steward what god has given us sure so i can't feel guilty That the Lord's plan for me was to move out of an urban neighborhood that was impoverished, to be able to access the education that I did. Mm -hmm. I can't be mad at my parents for moving us to the suburbs. I can't be upset that I had a scholarship to go to college. Like, I can't negate what God has given me. I have to steward that. But I can't expect that everybody has to have the same journey as me, or else I'm basically saying that their leadership is inferior to mine. So, no, they don't have to. But... but. I want my staff to be resourced and I want resources that make sense for them. So if I'm working with my children's pastor, for example, children's pastors have the most important job in the church. I think Mm -hmm. they have the most important job and the resources that she finds online or through, (laughs) you know, even if we can pay for them, even if we can actually, you know, buy them. They're not developed for our children. Right. They're developed for... Children that are growing up in a different context with a different set of questions yeah. and a different life reality.
2: That's true. Yeah. So Can you flesh that out? Yeah. Like, what is that what do you mean by that specifically?
1: I mean we need resources for kids that are growing up in an urban setting. Um they yeah. they experience life completely differently. Their their yeah. life so um, Michael Emerson I think says it best in his he write he Michael Emerson, Emerson who's a provost at North Park wrote a book called Divided by Faith like this was 2000 2001 mm-hmm. and he said that um you know more than thinking about racism in our world we should be thinking about the fact that we live in a racialized society because when we talk about racism it's just like is, is it a quality that i have or is it something <laughs> right. i'm personally doing right. when you realize that we live in a racialized society we realize that race matters for life experiences yeah opportunities and social relationships. So if that does matter and we live in a racialized society and in our community our children are experiencing incredible levels of trauma because of the violence that that mm-hmm. we have in our communities which you know has doubled in 2016 so far this mm-hmm. year than it was in 2015 at the same time. Mm-hmm maybe they are experiencing deportation of their parents or um the kind of poverty or violence or crime in their neighborhood and we are trying to teach them about the scriptures but the way in which we're teaching it doesn't make sense to their given reality each and every day so the lessons and the way that they're you know written and the assumption of choices that our kids have yeah, or what yeah. they watch or what they see or the stories they know so what um, Nancy Free, our children's pastor, will do is she'll get the lessons and then she has to work twice as hard because she has <laughs> to interpret those lessons for our children in our context and then come up with other creative games that would make sense in our context. So I tell her all the time, you should write a book. If all you did yeah. was to <laughs> put bullet points every week of the things that you did, and I just would... Put those on a you know a a document, we could probably send it to a publisher and they would publish it because there's not there's very little out there for yeah our our context so Nancy free is an example of a pastor and a leader that I think, how can I resource her, support her, develop her, encourage her so that not just so that she's heard or that she grows, not just for her, yeah. but for all those other churches out there that need that resource. Right. So extending her leadership beyond our local church into the whole church. Or, you know, our lead pastor, John Zias, he planted the church um, and it was the community center. You know, this is a community center open. Mu- Actually, our church is open every single day of the week and there are more people in it on the weekdays than there are on the weekends. Wow. Yeah. It's just, it's always, it's pumping and, you know, it's, right. everybody's in there. So, um, yeah. And Do you have like a basketball court or something Yeah, there? we have a okay. gym. It's yeah. basically like, uh, downstairs is a multi, it's like a fellowship hall. So imagine church fellowship hall downstairs, right. and then upstairs is a gym. Uh-huh. And then there are a couple of small classrooms around the building that are multi-purpose that we use, like my office is the conference room and my office. Okay, yeah. Because um, everything has multiple uses. Um, and so I think about someone like John Zayas, and I think, you know, he has planted a church and seen the growth of that church and developed leaders that have no formal education and ministry and has done that all in the context of his community. But you don't see him like teaching other people about church planting and yeah. his voice being heard. So I think, wow, what would it look like for these folks not only to be resourced and supported and encouraged, but for their leadership to extend beyond their local church so that other pastors who are in urban context trying to figure out how to plant a church with right. literally no money don't say i i can't do this. Yeah. But actually there's a resource here and it's been written and or recorded and or um you know it's accessible to me. So right. yeah, i think i think about all the beauty and the creativity and the leadership that's in this local church and i'm trying to do everything i can to invest into their leadership. Mm -hmm.
0: Our future is closer than we think. Our needs are growing, and so is the demand for energy, including more US oil and natural gas. Our economy, our security, our nation, all run on energy. Oil and natural gas make up more than 70% of the energy we use every day. And American energy is produced to among the highest environmental standards in the world. paid for by the American Petroleum
2: Institute. As someone who's been interested in these issues like uh, diversity and reconciliation since um, the, the, I think the 90s, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm really interested in your perception of uh, we already touched on it a little bit but how the church's approach to this has changed over the course of those years. Um, not just has it gotten better. I'm less interested in that as much as I am I am interested in like, what are the new uh, s- struggles and the new opportunities that the church has at this moment?
1: One of the opportunities for the church today as it thinks about diversity and race and kind of issues of justice, the things that we said that we've mm-hmm. been trying to grow in. I think one of the challenges and opportunities today is to make space for different voices to lead the way in that. Sure. So it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, but that's really my passion and what I see as someone who, I mean, I conference, you know, I lead worship, I speak, I do seminars and lots of different conferences. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the things I notice and I express a lot on my social media is that without diverse voices leading the way in the area of diversity, we will not be able to accomplish what we want to accomplish. Yeah um it cannot be always the same people talking about diversity or um church growth or church planting right now we've we've kind of stopped at representation yeah i really believe that yeah um and i know that because as someone who's often invited to speak at conferences that's exactly what i'm i'm asked to do so i'm like wow i'm so passionate about worship and preaching and leadership development but i'm only ever asked to come and speak about Latino, you know, or urban ministry, um, or will you come and speak as a Latina? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm always going to speak as a Latina. And the same <laughs> way you're always going to speak, you know, from your context. Yeah. We all lead and speak from our own context. Right. But um, recently, yeah, I, I wrote about it on Facebook. I was so frustrated, you know, I, I was invited to speak. a friend of mine is very well known in 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 some of the disciplines that I um that I'm, I'm passionate about. Um, asked said, you know, I think really think you should have Pastor Sandra come and speak at your conference. I'll just leave it that neutral because I don't want to out them. I'll speak, come and speak at your conference. <laughs> and the person responded with an email saying, oh, that's really great. We, you know, we already have this Latino church that's helping us with X, Y, and Z. And we have this other Latino guy that's going to come and speak. And I was like, what an interesting response. Yeah. Because I'm not being asked to come and fill a Latino chair at the table. Right. I'm asking to come as a – like she's asking that my voice would be heard. Yeah. So I doubt – I really highly doubt this happens – To my white male counterparts who get invited to conferences and they say, I'm so sorry, but we already have a white male speaking at this conference, so we don't really need any more. So I thought to myself, oh, isn't it interesting? It it gives me a clue as to how people think about whether it's conferencing or publishing or the classroom, you know, within our Christian institutions, that we are thinking solely about representation Mm -hmm. and we only really need one from every community.
2: And it's typically like you speak on this issue because that is who you are
1: i'm developing a seminary class on contextualized preaching Hmm. and so i sent an email out to friends saying hey could you recommend some books on preaching not written by white males Uh and people wrote back oh it's really good book and i may have three three long spreadsheets you know um very few of them are voices of color that are writing to preaching in general right so African-American voices writing on African-American preaching. Latino voices writing on Latino preaching. Yeah. So are we only allowed to speak to our own community mm-hmm. or to people who want to speak to our community? Or do we have something to say to the whole church yeah. about preaching? So I, I put out the question. So I put out the question on Facebook. Are white males uh, universal donors? Like, are they O negative? <laughs> because they can mm-hmm. give to anyone. Yeah. But if you're yeah. a woman, you write to women. Sure. If you're a woman, you preach to women. Mm-hmm. And if you're a person of color, then you either preach on, on behalf of all of the people in your community, or you preach specifically on urban ministry, issues of justice, reconciliation, which we have stuff to say about, but we we also could contribute to discipleship and leadership development. Imagine if we were allowed and invited to speak on preaching, church growth, church planting, discipleship, mentoring, Yeah. and the... Males in our academic settings, in our seminaries, were asked to read four books on mentoring. And at least two of those were on mentoring, the topic of mentoring by women, Mm -hmm. not mentoring women, but mentoring by women. How might that change the way that we mentor the next generation? So I think I'm looking for opportunities for us to move beyond representation and characterization Mm -hmm. to like actual learning and mutuality.
2: For local churches, if you were to sort of be dropped into a mostly white local church in the suburbs and you're their pastor, what would you do to emphasize this idea of diversity in the church?
1: Well, I have congregated and led in primarily white churches in the suburbs most of my career. Awesome. Tell Um, me about it. So, uh, I I think that the way that we invite people into diversity and into reconciliation and into justice, all of those things, I think the way that we invite people into those disciplines, those spiritual disciplines, I think is through modeling, doing life with people and exposing them one step at a time. So one of the things that we did in our church, and this is, you know, obviously the, ch- the our church is primarily um, Latino of different communities and African-American. And one of the things we did in our church um, is we preached a series out of the Book of Ruth. It was an eight-week series. The assumption is that the Book of Ruth is to be, pre- or Esther, or the story of Hannah is to be preached on Mother's Day mm-hmm. or at a women's retreat. But the Book of Ruth is God's counsel for all of God's people. So instead of saying a lot around it, we just preached it. And then, as we preached it, um, teaching, we continued to say, "This story of Ruth has so much to teach all of us in the church about God's love." And then the next week, depending on the topic, this book has so much to teach all of us about God's concern for those who are on the margins. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, um, the the ideas that you in, introduce them. By modeling and explaining and interpreting what you're doing. Yeah. Because otherwise we'd have to say the book of Samuel is only for men to hear about being a man in, in Christ or, you know, being being a faithful man right. and not for women. We would never say that about any of the other books of scripture, but right. yet we do that with Ruth, Esther and any story having to do with women. Sure. In our churches, we just, we expose them to other things. We model things. We take one step at a time and then... We seek to understand where people's barriers are. Like, what mm-hmm. are the barriers that come up for people?
2: What's the what's sort of the biggest struggle you've had doing that in those sort of suburban churches? Have you hit any walls or had anything that... Trying to get
1: people to integrate things. Huh. So it's not that the topic itself always needs to be about gender diversity or race issues. or It's sure. that we need to understand that that's integrated into our experiences. That if we are going to be a community... yeah. Authentically, real, a real community. Yeah. And we're gonna allow people to come just as they are. Right. And we have African American millennials in our congregation. It is likely we're gonna have to create space for their them to share their lament mm. and their grief and their experience as black Christians in our country today. But if we're afraid to talk about race or we are afraid to be behind movements like Black Lives Matter because we don't really understand them very well, then we're really not practicing authentic community. We're really pre- practicing pseudo community, which allows us to go to a certain part, only acknowledge similarities and commonalities, um, utilize scriptures to cover our fear of of addressing scripture by saying, "Oh, we're all one, and isn't yeah. this beautiful? Yeah. We're one body, yeah. but we're not actually rejoicing when the whole church rejoices, and lamenting and crying when the whole church cries." So there's like
2: a passive acceptance, but not so much an active attempt to like yeah. bring
1: bring this into reality. Yeah. So just on the topic of community, yeah. which Christians love to talk about, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Instead of making things, let's have a conversation about justice, or let's have a conversation about race, or let's have a conversation about diversity. We would have to say, what does it look like for our community to be an authentic community? And then if there are socioeconomic differences, we would need to ask ourselves why some of us are getting fatter while others of us are starving. We would need to ask ourselves why, why, if you have seven coats, does the other person not have one and you still have your seven? (laughs) We'd, We'd have to ask ourselves that. Yeah. Because it's not, it's a part of our realized community, not our implied or implicit community. It's how we actually do community. For example, immigration reform is not a political issue for me. It is a pastoral reality for me. Immigration reform impacts every single part of our ministries every day at my church. Our children, our youth, our parents, our mentoring, our preaching, it affects everything. Our ties. Mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So for some people, what is a political question is for the others of us uh, a pastoral question
2: i have a pastor who's white a white male in alabama i have a pastor friend who's a white male in alabama he has a ministry for his church where they send a van around to pick up i guess latino kids in that area and they he he got very it, he, had, he experienced this because of that ministry where it suddenly became very personal for him, because they started passing laws, like they were passing a law that said them picking up that those kids was going to be essentially illegal. Like them knowing that they were illegal immigrants, they weren't allowed to like take them to church for whatever reason. Um, and it's just fascinating to me, like to to see how that can hit home when you actually start interacting with real individuals who experience uh, the the sort of brunt of those legal things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think obviously relationship is at the key of that. And and we always want to seek out relationship, mm-hmm. but mostly we're afraid of it. Um, So we don't, but, but in some cases, even where we're not allowed to seek that out, we would have to ask ourselves if we believe the scriptures are true and we are one body, then whether or not I ever interact with a Latino child or pick them up to come to my right. congregation. <laughs> yeah. There are brothers and sisters of ours that we desperately want to invest in when we go on missions to Mexico and the Dominican Republic, but mm-hmm. we do not want to invest in them when they're here. And we have to ask why. We have to ask God to enlarge our hearts and to help us to pray, um, not only for our Latino congregations that are all over our country. I mean, many of whom are not undocumented. They're, they're documented. They're our brothers and sisters. But experience A racialized life experience in this country because of a heightened anti-immigration environment we're in and policies that don't work. So you could you could have been here five six generations, but if you look like you might be an immigrant, then (laughs) you're going to experience certain things at the airport and certain things on the road and Mm -hmm. certain things in um, you know while you're shopping that other people are not going to experience. And those are our brothers and sisters. So if we are one body then what is our responsibility to pastor and invite our congregations as, as church leaders to have a heart for the things that God sees and the things that God has a heart for, um, whether or not we ever come into contact with them. Obviously relationships matter. Ask that to anyone who's been married cross-culturally or interracially, like <laughs> all of a sudden you will understand life in a completely different way. <laughs> right. um, but even without having access to those relationships, the truth of scripture still calls us to unity um, and it still calls us to solidarity and it still calls us to mutuality. And so therefore, how do we practice that? How do we preach that? And if our preaching and our practice is absent of those things, then we have some hard challenges ahead of us. Yeah. So I think that's where the, the challenge and the opportunities for us are in that area. And I think that what I always seek when I'm working with people um, to like take steps forward is, is to integrate them. And that's just, we just had a conversation just about community. Yeah. Let alone all the other things the scriptures right. to. So Right. Um, we have barely talked yeah. <laughs> about worship
2: leading in this conversation, which is the, what your entire book is about. But people can read that book and they'll get a lot of good pointers. And I've done an interview with you so they can read the interview too. <laughs> um, one other question I want to ask is a, per- a personal one. Um, and it's just this. If you were able to talk to your younger self now, what would you say?
1: I would say don't be afraid. Why would you say that? Those of us that are in ministry know the difficulty of the call, you know, just yeah. just being a given the the honor and the privilege, but also the responsibility of shepherding people, right. of walking through life with people and all of the things that come, you know, yeah. just since the beginning of the year, we've had multiple funerals, we've had um, family crisis, we've had a lot of things happen and, and just to walk through life with people is difficult and to try to Cast vision for mission as a preacher and as a pastor, while while people just feel like they're trying to keep their lives together. So you're you're trying to go somewhere, trying to give them an opportunity to to hear God's voice and to hear God's call to witness. You know, you you're mm-hmm. preaching to your congregation about sharing their faith, about being a light in their workplace, but and all the while they're just trying to keep their lives together. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. they have kids that are struggling with depression. They have parents that are aging. They have, um teenagers that are rebelling. they All these things are happening and you're trying to give them, you know, a a vision for how the church can transform the neighborhood. I mean, and on nothing, you know, on on a complete budget freeze since October. So you think to yourself, I'm crazy. You know, like I I shouldn't invite people to these things. I shouldn't cast vision for the transformation of our community. I should just. um, So the call is hard. And I think sometimes we shrink back um, as leaders, as church leaders and as preachers, I think we shrink back from inviting people to the full call hmm. of the gospel in all of its beauty and all of its hugeness. I have no other word for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I would say to myself, don't be afraid. It, it took me a long time. Um, I, I think one of the reasons I, I went to seminary after I had already been in ministry for over a decade was because I felt I needed to have the credential. In order for people to hear my voice as credible, particularly as a woman mm-hmm. speaking to the area of justice and reconciliation in the church, yeah, and feeling very, very called to the church in the u s yeah, and knowing that that's um that's difficult to hear, right, so I felt well I have to go to seminary because I have to see if I'm actually right, you know um <laughs> yeah. uh, and do you regret going to seminary? No, I loved it, I would do okay. it again. I would go to Trinity again, so okay. um But it really was getting kind of like sitting in the classroom with people who most of them had a lot lot less experience than me and were a lot younger than me, um, hearing their perspectives on what they thought it would be like to pastor and then thinking, okay, um, not so much. I don't remember. I don't know when the last time you talked to a non-believer was, but that's not actually how it goes. But no, I think that the experience of it was beautiful because I got to participate and learn as well as interact with with classmates that were asking the same questions as the pastors I was trying to influence outside of my seminary experience. So it's kind of the same group of people, right? So it's kind of like test case here, you know. But I think that going to seminary was a part of building my confidence, even though I already had the work done. Sure. So I think I would tell myself not to be afraid. I think that there are some of us that because we are so underrepresented as authors, um, as church leaders, as voices, quote unquote, in in evangelicalism, I think that we feel we experience a lot of self-doubt and I think I could have done things earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I waited a lot, a long time to do some things. Yeah. It took me eight years to write my book and I think I could have written it eight years ago if I had had more confidence and I wouldn't have been afraid. Um, And my husband finally said to me, listen, honey, if you don't write this book, somebody else is going to try to write it and then you're going to get mad <laughs> because you didn't get to share all your experiences and all the sweat, blood, and tears that went into that, that journey. And so I think I needed someone to tell me it was okay. Like I could write, I had a voice. Um, So I think I would tell my younger self as a woman of color, don't be afraid. You've
2: been listening to The Calling. Santa Maria Van Obstel is a pastor at the Grace and Peace Community in Chicago. She's the author of The Next Worship, Glorifying God in a Diverse World. You can pick that book up uh, in all sorts of different kinds of stores uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Sandra Van Opstel that's at sign Sandra Van Opstel uh, remember to rate and review the show on iTunes it helps us a lot I got another one I'm going to read now from Ish That it says I get a lot more out of these conversations than I do from conference speeches Rich minds the experiences of a diverse group of church leaders to find ordinary practical and challenging ideas for the rest of us that's nice. Thanks, Mom. That's Mom again. All right. Uh, the Calling is produced by Cray All Red, and our theme music is by Lee Rosevere, used under the Creative Commons 4.0 license.